0: and I was talking to our friend Vicky uh, from Tanzania, and she said, actually, Jenga, is, uh, which was invented in East Africa, is Jenga is in Swahili to build. So now you know something you know, that your compatriots in the commercial don't know. You'll be ahead of the game on that one. But you see, with the game of Jenga, the key for Jenga is making sure, uh, A, that you don't turn the bass up too loud during worship, because that knocks it over. But uh, B, the key for Jenga, right, is all about the foundation. It's all about getting the bottom part right. Because with the game of Jenga, you can take blocks from the middle and you can move them around. I don't think you're supposed to touch I think you're only supposed to use one hand. You know, you can put them on top. You can take blocks from in here and you can move them. But as soon as you start taking blocks from the very, very bottom and the foundation gets wobbly then the whole game is over. And so I want us to keep that in mind as we go into our text together this morning because foundations matter. They're quite important. They're important in life. They're important in relationships. They're important in building. They're important in faith as well. And so if I was to ask you, what's the foundation of Christianity? What would you say? What's the bedrock for Christians or people who call themselves Christians? Remember, just like Jenga, the foundation that you build on matters. And if that foundation is shaky or wobbly, the whole thing can be shaky or wobbly. So what's the foundation of the Christian faith? Where would you find it? In the scriptures, uh, one of the earliest expressions we have of this is in a book called First corinthians and in chapter 15 one of the earliest writers in the new testament by the name of the apostle paul is writing and he's quoting an early song or jingle or creed that christians would say to each other as an expression of the foundation of christian faith and he says it this way in first corinthians chapter 15 summing up the foundation of christianity I passed on to you, Paul says, what was most important, its foundational, what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said and just as we celebrated on Good Friday, and he was buried. And he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the scriptures said, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4. See, the foundation for Christianity is laid out for us here in just those two succinct verses. That which is most important, Paul says, it's foundational. That which is rooted in the scriptures, in the Old Testament, and the prophetic words. That which is verifiable. He goes on to say right after this, that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to his followers and he says, some of them are still alive. And what he's saying there is, go ask them that this stuff is true. They've seen it. Go check it out. And when Paul says, this is the foundation of Christianity, he's saying Jesus was buried in a tomb after he was crucified. And on the third day, he rose again on Easter Sunday morning was resurrected by the power of God just as the scriptures had said. And here's the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15. He's saying, you know what? You can take a lot of other blocks out of that whole deal and you can move them around. You can disagree about certain things. You can discuss them. You can put all kinds of other rearrangements in. But if you start messing with the foundation, you're in trouble. And Paul says, this is the foundation of our faith as Christians. This is the place in history where it's located. You can take out a lot of other things, move them around. There's other non-foundational or secondary things when it comes to Christian belief and practice. But what Paul's saying here, when he's quoting this ancient creed, and he's saying, this is foundational. The events of that first Easter weekend our bedrock for everything else that preceded it, everything else that follows it, from the story of the early church to the events and the life of Jesus that impacts your life and mine. So it might surprise you just a few verses later in the same text that Paul has to inquire as to why some people who are calling themselves Christians are not interested in believing the resurrection to be true. There are those just a few short years following that very first Easter who are already saying things like, you know, I want to believe in Jesus. I want to believe in him as a moral teacher, as a guiding influence in my life, as an example to follow. But I don't think I can believe this resurrection from the dead thing. And if you're a person that wrestles with doubts, it might be comforting for you to know that your questions are reflected right in the text of scripture. We're going to look at some of those this morning. Because sometimes it can be easy to default to thinking of Christian as a large monolithic category. That despite all of the diversity historically, theologically, geographically, perhaps Christians could at least get it together for two minutes and agree on some core foundational truths. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Whether you're Catholic, whether you're Protestant, whether you're Orthodox, doesn't matter your denomination, your tribe, your location in the world, your placement in history. When you, when you celebrate Easter, you might think that, well, Christians have always agreed upon these things as bedrock. But right here in 1 Corinthians, we see that that may not necessarily be true, that right there in the early church in the New Testament, they had disagreements about some of these things. And so Paul had to write to them to give them some clarifying instructions because some of these disagreements were really, really messy. And it's into one of these earliest arguments in the life of the church that we get a little window in First Corinthians 15 because it's about the topic of resurrection. As Pastor Keith said, this morning we're launching a new teaching series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're calling it Messy Church. And I think that that's an appropriate way to celebrate Jericho Ridge's birthday, because today is Jericho Ridge's 10-year, I don't know whether you called it a birthday or an anniversary for a church. I'm not really sure. But the congregation here at Jericho was launched 10 years ago at Easter Sunday, just across the parking lot, Easter Sunday 2005 in the cafeteria at Ari Mountain Secondary School. So happy birthday to all of you. You didn't even know there was going to be a birthday today, did you? It's a great celebration. We already ate earlier, so there's no cake. We didn't think that would be a good plan to, you know, stuff us with cinnamon buns at nine and then cake afterwards. So we're going to have cake in June when we do an outdoor party. But it is intriguing to me as we get into kind of milestones in the life of both institutions and as individuals, sometimes we start to reflect back and we start to think about history and we gloss it over a little bit and we think about Uh, the history with a little bit of maybe rose-colored glasses on. So it's sometimes interesting to get, people get a little sentimental around birthdays or anniversaries. For churches, they think back to kinder, gentler, easier times when seemingly everyone agreed on everything. Or you can look back on a time in church history and idealize it and think, man, I read the Bible and I look at the book of Acts. They sure had it going on back then. How come we don't see that kind of stuff today? But oftentimes... What we don't account for in our idealized distortion is that the church is messy. It always has been, and it always will be. It just is. Church is messy because relationships are messy. It's messy because mission is messy and complicated. It's messy because both the capital C church, meaning the global and historic church and this church is filled with peoples whose lives, whose histories, whose beliefs, whose futures and styles and cultural understandings and spiritual journeys are all different. And so that just makes it messy when you put it all together. Living together in community is messy. And so the apostle Paul writes a letter, a series of letters, actually, to a messy church in an ancient city called Corinth. And we're going to look at some of the advice that he gives to them and how it applies to each one of us. So let's pray as we look into God's word together this morning. God, we're grateful for all of your gifts to us. We're thankful for the gift of community and the gift of a church the gift of mission, and the gift of life that you have given to us. And so, God, now as we turn our hearts and our eyes to the Scriptures, uh, we want to hear from you. Holy Spirit, would you speak to each one of us in each uh, unique and fresh way for each of us on this Easter Sunday morning, God. Open our eyes to see truth in your word. Open our hearts to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Men. well we're actually in our series we're going to cheat and we're going to start at the end of the book of first corinthians because that's where paul talks about easter but then we're going to go back to chapter one and from now till the end of june we're going to tackle some of these messy topics like human sexuality uh, gender and leadership in the church how to handle disagreements with people in the church is it right to judge other people what do you do with some of the messier things in the church, messier spiritual gifts, tongues, prophecy? It's going to be fun, but I can also promise it's going to be messy. So we're going to dive into our text together in First Corinthians 15. So you can turn there with me in your Bibles or if you have it on your phone. And the messy controversy that Paul wants to address is around the topic of resurrection. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll be reading uh, from verse 12 to 18 in the New Living Translation. So you can follow along with me. Paul asks a question and says, tell me this. Since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying that there will be no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, then all of our preaching is useless, your faith is useless, and we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And then your faith is useless, and you're still guilty of your sins. And in that case... All who have died believing in Christ are also lost. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are to be pitied more than anyone in the world. See, right at the beginning, in the start of the church as a community, there were disagreements. And at the beginning of this chapter, we see Paul laying out what was of foundational importance, what's core for all who profess Jesus Christ as Lord, who name themselves as Christians, that being Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But then look at verse 12. Paul says, hey, some of you are saying that there's no resurrection from the dead. It was messy even back at the start of the church. But notice what Paul does then. He helps them play that argument out to see what the logical extent or consequences of that argument might be and where it leads them. And they says, let's explore that. So he starts by saying, essentially, let's pretend for a minute that what you say is true. Let's say there is no resurrection, no life after death. You get to your last breath and it's lights out and then nothing what would that mean for christianity what would that mean for faith paul pushes them and says you know what it would mean it would mean that if it's true there's no resurrection no life after death then first of all jesus never came back to life from being dead and if jesus didn't do that that's a problem for the movement that's founded on and has at its foundational core that reality. And so here's the first problem that Paul pushes them to consider and that we bump into. And that is the problem of saying that you are a Christian but not believing what Christians have historically held to as the foundation of faith. So Paul points out and says, listen, if there's no resurrection, that would in effect... Nullify your faith. Nullify your past faith. Why? He reminds them. He says, listen, your faith is nullified because you based your faith in Christ on the preaching of the good news. When we came to you, Paul says, this is what we told you. We told you Jesus about his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And you said, yes and amen to that. And so you based your faith on that. And so if you throw out the resurrection, you throw out both baby and bath water. Look what Paul just said to them in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. Let me now remind you, brothers and sisters, he says, of the good news that I preached to you before. You welcomed it then. And you still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you you continue to believe the message that I told you. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. Paul says to them, listen, when I came, this is what I told you about the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And you responded and said, yes, amen. I believe that what you're telling me is true and I will base my life on it. You responded willingly And willfully placing your whole trust, your whole direction of your lives into faith in Jesus. You put your direction of your life was altered because of your faith in this. But now, some of you are saying, nah, I don't think there's a resurrection. Paul says to them, that doesn't work. You see, you have to base your life and your faith on something. Bob Dylan said that, didn't he? You have to base your faith on something. And if that faith is in Jesus, then it will be based on the reality of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. You cannot deny Jesus' resurrection and still say, yeah, I have total confidence in Jesus. New Testament scholar and theologian Gordon Fee in his excellent but very, very thick commentary on 1 Corinthians puts it very bluntly when he says this, to deny the resurrection of the one of the dead is to deny the resurrection of the one who makes any and all resurrections possible. To deny resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of the one being Jesus who makes any and all resurrections possible. So let's go a step further in personalizing this for you and me. Let me ask you a foundational question. What's your faith based on? If you claim to be a person of faith. If you claim that you are a Christian, what is your understanding Of what that means. What's the foundation of your understanding of what it means to be a Christian? See, for some in our world, that answer to that question is cultural. A sense that, well, if I was born in a country with lots of Christians in it, or Christian influences or heritage, then by default, or by maybe osmosis, I'm a Christian. But look carefully at those verses that Paul talked about in First Corinthians 15, 1 and 2. He says, you welcomed it if you continue to believe it. He says, there's an active element that is essential to faith. Not only in the preaching, but also in the receiving. So friends, don't miss this. You don't become a Christian any other way. You don't become a Christian because you grew up in a home that calls itself Christian. You are not a Christian because you went to a Christian school or because you go to church. You are not a Christian because your grandparents were Christian. You don't get to be a Christian because you have a Mennonite or a Dutch or some other last name that somehow associates you with Christianity. Faith, Christian faith, is based on an active choice to believe that Jesus is who he said he is and that he did what he said he came to do. So, friends, my hope for you today is that if you have not done so, that you would make that active choice. And I'm going to give you fair warning that at the end of this talk, I'm going to pray and I'm going to lead you in a prayer where you would make that active choice. And I want you to wrestle with it and consider making that choice here today before you leave. Because the Bible reminds us in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that the way to a clear foundation of faith in our lives is simple but difficult. And it's by saying, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord. And what that means is, I believe that who Jesus said he is, is true. And I believe in my heart that, Romans ten nine says, God raised him from the dead. And if you believe that, you will be saved. So Paul is pushing this group that he's writing to and us to consider the clear and logical implication, and that is you cannot be a Christian if you do not believe in life after death. But here's where sometimes, if you are a Christian, you get a little bit nervous and think, oh, but Brad, does that not have something of a fundamental incompatibility with our culture? I mean, believing in life after death, it just it seems a bit, I don't know, out there for a rational, scientific, logical, modern, developed culture such as ours, doesn't it? I was intrigued this last week to see a brand new study conducted by the Angus Reid Institute here in Canada. And they uh, conducted a study called Religion in Canada where they asked thousands and thousands of people questions uh, across the country that were religious in nature about perceptions and belief and all kinds of things. And what they found was actually very surprising to me. Some of the stats uh, from that were actually quoted in this week's uh, issue of McLean's magazine. And the author was very intrigued by some of these stats. And the, listen to what the author says. The author says, however polarized we may be on certain questions here in Canada, there are some surprising beliefs shared by many Canadians. The percentage, for example, of people who believe it's possible to communicate to, with the dead has doubled over the past three decades, and is now up to 42%. And up to a third of Canadians believe that they will be reincarnated. What's interesting to me is that despite the tone of dialogue around religion in Canada today, and the perceptions of some people in culture, there is still a sense in our nation that there are some shared beliefs around attitudes towards spirituality. And there's still a sense that actually Christians share some foundational convictions with people who would not identify themselves as Christians. And surprising to me, one of the beliefs that has held most firm over the last four decades when Angus Reid has been tracking this is a belief in life after death. The Angus Reid survey went on to note one of the most surprising findings for them was that some two in three, so 66% of Canadians acknowledge that they believe in life after death. And this is virtually the same proportion as when they surveyed this question in the mid-1970s. Fascinating that that many people would self-identify to say, yep, no i believe in life after death and on top of this they asked another set of questions and almost 80% of people across all age categories said that they think often or somewhat often about what happens after death 80% of people across almost all age categories think often or somewhat often about what happens about life after death. Friends, I find this very intriguing. Two out of three people in our country believe in life after death. Eight out of ten of your neighbors, acquaintances, schoolmates, relatives, associates from all backgrounds are wondering sometimes too often about what happens after death. And it makes me wonder if sometimes Christians are shying away from a topic that the rest of our culture wants to talk about. Because at some points in history, the church has gotten caught in the messy trap of only emphasizing the moral dimensions of Christianity, of saying things like, you know what, you should come to Jesus because Jesus will make you a better person. But friends, this is not what Christianity is founded on. It's founded... In an historical event. The life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we can't deny or escape the foundation of the resurrection and still label ourselves Christians. Because this is bedrock stuff. This is bottom block kind of Jenga stuff. You can take out a whole bunch and argue all you want about a whole bunch of other doctrines in Christianity. You can say, well, I would place that there in my own personal persuasion or my own personal theological perspective. But when you start messing around with the very foundation of faith and you start saying, you know what? I'm not real comfortable with the resurrection anymore. You, the whole thing topples. Because this is the foundation upon which Christian faith is built. Life, death, burial, resurrection. If you pull that out, it all falls down. And that's where Paul turns his thinking next in this discussion. He says, listen, if there's no resurrection, that first Easter, not only is the foundation of your faith off, but right now, in the here and now, this really, really undermines your present life. If there's no resurrection, you have a big problem. Because building Christianity on any other foundation, the foundation of being a moral person or being a good person is untenable because if Jesus is still dead, that makes faith in him useless because we still have the very problem that he came to solve, and that is the problem of sin. This is what Paul is saying in verse 17. I like the way the message translation puts it, where it says this, face it, if there is no resurrection for Christ, everything we have told you is smoke and mirrors. Everything you have staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. If Christ was not raised, then all you're doing is wandering around in the dark as lost as ever. If nothing happened to Jesus, nothing happened to you. Your life was not transformed when you met him in an eternal and meaningful and lasting way. If Jesus is still dead, you shouldn't believe that God hears and answers prayers. You shouldn't believe power and transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit is possible because if Jesus is dead, that undermines the very Pinnings of faith in your life. And on top of that, Paul says, not only is your faith useless and dead, but you're kind of lying to yourself and you're lying to other people. And this really taints the credibility of your witness. Look at verse 15 in chapter 15, where Paul says, You know what? We apostles would all be lying about the most serious thing in the world, about God. For we have told you that God raised Christ from the grave. But that can't be true if there's no resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, listen, everybody that you talk to about faith, about God, Christianity, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, you're a liar. You're making God out to be a liar. And you get the sense from reading the whole of chapter 15, which we don't have time to do today, that Paul's kind of offended because really they're also saying to him, yeah, Paul, you're kind of a liar too because you're the one that told us all of this stuff. And Paul says, again, at the beginning of the chapter, listen, this stuff is so foundational. It's so important that I want you to check this out. Go and talk to these people. I talked last Easter about some of the historical evidence for the resurrection. And so if that's a question for you that you want to wrestle with, go back and check the, on our website and you can get the podcast and listen to some of those uh, talks and get a little bit of a stronger sense on that. What Paul is saying here is if you call yourself a Christian, but if Jesus is still dead, you go around telling everybody you're a Christian, you got a whole lot of nerve. And you're also a little bit crazy of some of the things that you might do that Christians might do because Christians do things like make sacrifices for Jesus why would a group of people go down and give up their march break raise money invest in uh, all kinds of initiatives in things like in Guatemala why serve the poor people who are poor Why give money away? Why show up on Sunday mornings when you could sleep in? Paul, who was actively persecuted for his faith, says the same thing. You can read about his life in the New Testament, in the book of Acts. In 1 Corinthians 15, 30, he says, why should I risk my life? If this stuff isn't true, why in the world would I risk my life? And why in the world would all of the other people who knew Jesus and who were actively persecuted for their faith, and for saying that this was true, why would they go to their graves for a lie? British journalist A.N. Wilson grew up in what he describes as a moderately secular British home. His mother uh, was a church-going person, his father was not, and so he was conflicted all of his life about faith. And he wrote an article in yesterday's edition of the Daily Mail newspaper in the UK. And he wrestled with this, and he was trying to figure out How, as a person growing up in those two worlds, should he celebrate Easter? Bunnies and chocolate or go to church? And he writes, interestingly and poignantly, we can easily dismiss Easter as a fairy tale. He says, I can easily dismiss Easter as a fairy tale, especially if I hide from myself the uncomfortable fact that the first men and women who claimed to be witnesses to Easter, were prepared to be tortured and to die horribly rather than deny the risen Christ. We think, he says, we are justified in shutting Easter out of our lives because we cannot believe unlikely stories about a man rising from death. But the truth is what deters most of us from complicating, com- contemplating Easter, is not the thought of Christ's death, but our own. The truth is, he says, what deters most of us from contemplating Easter and resurrection is not the thought of Christ's death, but our own. And so he concludes his article, it's just easier to sit on the sofa and eat chocolate. (laughs) That's the final problem that Paul is pointing to here in 1 Corinthians 15 in this text is if Jesus didn't experience resurrection thinking about our own mortality becomes a gripping experience of fear because the problem is if Jesus didn't experience resurrection no one's going to experience resurrection and so future hope is destroyed 1 Corinthians 15 19 says if our hope in Christ, is only for this life, we are pitiful. It's absolutely pitiful. We are to be pitied more than anyone else in this world if future hope is destroyed. And this is where he makes his turn in verse 20 and says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. I love the choice of words that he uses there. He's been saying, if what you say is true, then let's play that out. And here in verse 20, he doesn't say, well, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, then what now? He says, but in fact, or but now. Friends, these are the most powerful and beautiful and hope inspiring words ever uttered. But in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And they're worth committing to memory as a foundational building block to remind ourselves of the truth of this. I like the way Paul puts the same thing in another one of his books, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. And so that's our Bible memory challenge for this week. We're going through the Bible this year and we're trying to commit as much of it to memory as we can. I'm slowed up in February somewhere. So if you're feeling a little overwhelmed, then I'm with you on that. But this one's a good one. It's nice and succinct and easy. So let's put it up on the screen and I want you to say it out loud with me on three. We'll read it all together. All right. One, two, three. Three, yet God raised Jesus to life and God's spirit now lives in you and he will raise you to life by his spirit. One more time, yet God raised Jesus to life, God's spirit now lives in you and he will raise you to life by his spirit. See, this is the foundational hope and promise of resurrection. That God has offered to those who place their trust and their confidence in Jesus. That they are freed from the penalty of sin, all of the good things that we have left undone and the bad things that we have done. If we're honest with ourselves, each of us has elements of our lives that haunt us fear and guilt and shame and relationships that we have broken. And some of us carry those things with us from birth through to the grave. And they haunt us. And most of the time, we'd rather sit on the couch and eat chocolate than think about these things. But all of us live with things in our lives that grip us and have power to govern and destroy our lives. But the message of the resurrection is that you and I can experience freedom from those things by God's Spirit we can experience forgiveness of sin, an abundant life that has the possibility of beginning now and going on into eternity because of what Jesus has done, because of his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, because he is alive. He has defeated sin and death and the grave. And so you and I, when we look to our future and when we think about and contemplate our own death, as morbid as it sounds, we can think of it with an element of hope beyond the grave because Jesus has defeated death. At the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says it this way in verse 54 and 55 because of the resurrection death has been swallowed up in victory and so he issues almost a taunt death where is your victory death where is your sting for stin is the sting that results in death and the law gives sin its power but thank god he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ron and the team are going to come and they're going to lead us in some songs that express this opinion and these truths. And as we do so, I want to close with three implications for us here today. The first implication is that if the resurrection is true, you have to wrestle with it. You have to wrestle with it because each of us builds our lives on some foundation. For myself and millions of others, we have built our lives on the foundation of the truth of the resurrection, and we have found it to be firm and secure and able to hold the weight of the challenges and circumstances of life. The hope of resurrection can give life its purpose and meaning. The hope of resurrection can give you hope for the future. And, friend, I want that for you. And I want you to pray with me in a minute. But I want to say that if you're not ready to fully give your life to Jesus, to fully build on this firm foundation, don't pray the prayer with me. Because it's not about praying the prayer, it's about the action of taking your life and saying, I trust you, Jesus, with the whole of my life, my present, my past, my future, that you have forgiven my sins and made a way for me to be in right relationship with God. And so you've got to wrestle with it because it's a serious commitment to make to turn your life over to God. The second word is for those who are people of faith. And this Easter... I want to remind us that if resurrection life is true, that that is news worth sharing. If it's true, I want you to share. There's youth in our city who are lost in the margins, and so we're going to go on the 22nd of April and serve a meal. Some of you serve in many different ways all throughout the week, in your jobs, in different places of volunteerism, where you're actively sharing about the hope that you have as a result of your belief and conviction that the resurrection is true and that Jesus is alive. You can be confident in sharing this. Confident also in entering into some of those discussions because many of your friends and neighbors and coworkers want to talk about things about life after death. You want to do it sensitively and with wisdom and as the Spirit prompts and directs you, but share the hope that you have in a hospitable and gentle way. Be ready, First Peter says, to give an answer for the hope that you have. Because if it's true, you not only want to share it, but you want to live like it's true. When you live like it's true, you can live with a, a confident hope no matter what the future holds. Because you live secure in the knowledge that ultimately, no matter what comes into your life, Ultimately, even death will not have the last word because the last word in your life, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, is victory. Death, where is your sting? Death has been swallowed up in victory. And so if it's true, you live like it's true and you live with a confidence and a hope. And that is why Paul closes, thanks be to God who gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to invite you to stand with me as the team leads us. We also have a prayer team that we regularly make available here. And if you have something in your life that you would like someone to pray with you about and stand with you, maybe it's a challenging circumstance that you're going through. Uh, Deb and Curtis will be available over at this side, and Megan and myself will be available over at this side. We would love to pray with you in this time. And so as the team continues to lead us in sung worship, we invite you to make your way there. Let me pray with you at this time. God, we are grateful that in a world as tumultuous as ours, in life experiences, as varied and as complicated as ours today, as is represented in a room like this, you know each and every one of us. You know the messiest places of our lives. You know the trouble that we have gotten ourselves into. You know our history. You know everything about us, God. And yet you offer redemption, forgiveness, hope, mercy, healing, grace through the power of the resurrected Jesus. And so, Father, I pray for each person here today. And if you're a person here today that has not yet placed your hope and confidence in Jesus, I want you to pray along with me. Say, Jesus today is the day. Today is the day that I choose to build on a new foundation. I want you to wipe away all of the rubble and the junk and the garbage from my past, and I want to build fresh on a solid foundation today, Jesus, of faith and confidence in you. I want to experience freedom and forgiveness of sin. I choose to believe that you are who you said you are. I choose to believe that you are offering me what it is that the scriptures promise that you're offering me. I choose to trust you with my past, my present, and my future. I place my hope and my confidence in you today. I will walk away from guilt and shame today because of the power of resurrection. If you prayed that prayer today, I want you to come and talk to me before you leave. We'd love to pray with you and get you a copy of the Bible.